participants here this evening. Every single one is welcome here. We're really glad to have everybody here. Uh, we come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different kinds of people in, in some ways. We have one thing in common, however, that's Christ and uh, truly uh, a union of diverse people. And that's the way it should be in Christ. Uh, one body made up of different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different abilities, all of that kind of thing, but we're one. And uh, we appreciate that a great deal. I'm going to talk a little bit about some history as uh, we introduce our subject tonight. It may be that if you're young in middle school or high school and, and uh, you have a history class, I think it's required to have a history class every year through high school. Uh, in, in those early years, those early grades of studying history, history is sort of a combination of names and lists and dates and places and things like that. So let me just throw a few dates out to you and see if you recognize them and know the, their importance in American history. The first one, July the 4th, 1776. Yeah, that, that should uh, ring a bell with us. We declared our independence from, from England on that day, July the 4th, 1776. December 7th, 1941. Anybody recognize that date? Uh, some, if you're older, you would recognize that. December 7th, 1941. That's the date the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. That's a significant date in American history, and we get into the conflict after that. How about June 6th, 1944? It's a few years later, June the 6th, 1944, the invasion of Normandy, D-Day, and a significant date in, in that conflict. November 22nd, 1963. Anybody remember that? I, I kind of remember that. That's within my lifetime. November 22nd, 1963. President Kennedy was assassinated on that day. I kind of remember that. I have a remember, kind of a memory of that. I was about six years old at the time, and I can remember when that happened. Here's a date that more of us will, will remember. September 11th, 2001. You remember that day, September 11, 2001. Of course, that's the day the World Trade Centers were attacked, and uh, I remember where I was when I heard the news. I was uh, that morning watching the morning news, and, and uh, they were talking about how a plane had crashed into one of the World Trade Centers, wondered what happened, how that was going on, and then, oh, there's another one. And you knew right then, if there was any doubt before, you knew then uh, this was... Uh, the act of, and this was on purpose, and the act of people that uh, wanted to inflict a great deal of damage. How about June 11th, 1957? Anybody know that date, June 11th, 1957? Well, that's my birthday. <laughs> now, usually those dates are really not, not memorialized and celebrated until uh, the, the person has passed. And so I'm sure that date will go down in U.S. history, but not yet, not yet. How about this date? October 31st, 1517. Now that's not American history, obviously, but October 31st, 1517. Well, that's the date that a young German monk nailed 95 propositions for debate on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And if, you, you, if you've studied world history or history of Western civilization, you know that's that's an important event. The young monk's name was Martin Luther. 
And you can kind of start the period that we know of as the Reformation on that day. Now, there were things going on before that day, but, but Martin Luther, young monk, Wittenberg, Germany, he was disturbed about some things that he saw in the Catholic Church. He was a member of the Catholic Church. And he was disturbed about some things, some developments that he saw, some things were going wrong. And so he wanted a discussion. He wanted a public discussion of, of those things, those issues. He wanted to get it all out in the open and, and talk about that. And he wanted to expose these abuses and wrongdoings. And so, as the story goes, I don't know how much of this is fact and how much is legend, he takes those 95 propositions for debate, the 95 theses, and he nails them to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so again, the beginning of the Reformation. Now Luther was a voluminous writer. I mean, he wrote, wrote and wrote and wrote. He wrote all kinds of things. He wrote pamphlets, he wrote commentaries, he wrote books, he wrote sermons, he wrote hymns. We sing one of his hymns. A Mighty Fortress is Our God is a hymn written by Martin Luther. Of course, he didn't write it in English the way we sing it, but, but he's the, the author of that. And his writings were circulated throughout Europe. You see, not long before that time, there was a, an invention that helped spread uh, his ideas, the, the printing press. About 70 years before this date, the printing press was developed, and, and those were built and distributed throughout Europe. And so there are lots of printing presses out there. And so Martin Luther would write a tract, and it would be published, and it would be printed, it would be circulated. And so these ideas of his really caught fire and spread all through, all through Europe. And eventually a break was made with the Catholic Church and a new religious body was formed. And so Martin Luther's original intent was not to make a new church or a new religious body, but simply to reform, that's why it's called the Reformation, to reform the church that he was a member of, the Roman Catholic Church dominated the scene at the time, although I will say there have always been, there was always dissenters. There was always people that dissented from the, you know what, the Roman Catholic Church that dominated the scene. Now at the same time that Luther was doing his work in Germany, there was a man over in Switzerland, a contemporary of Martin Luther, lived at the same time as Martin Luther, and he was a leading reformer over there in Zurich. His name was Ulrich Zwingli. Now that's the way I say it. That's probably not the way he said it, but that's the way that, that I said it. And like I said, he was a contemporary of Luther. They held a lot of ideas and a lot of things in common, a lot of, you know, we're talking about religious ideas and things like that. And so they held many things in common, especially their opposition to Catholicism. But there were significant differences between Luther and Zwingli. The Lord's Supper was one of the differences. They, they, they disagreed strongly about the Lord's Supper. You see, Luther believed in what was called the real presence of Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Now, remember Luther and Zwingli both are coming out of Catholicism. In Catholicism, uh, the doctrine is that uh, the idea is that the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist as it's called, uh, actually become, miraculously become, the literal flesh of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus. So it looks like bread, 
feels like bread, it tastes like bread, but in the Mass, in the ceremony, the Eucharist, the bread becomes the flesh of Jesus. And the cup becomes the actual blood of Jesus. Now, Martin Luther didn't believe that. He broke away from that. He didn't believe in transubstantiation, but he did believe that in the bread, the body of Christ was, well, he would say, in, with, and under it. Now, it doesn't change into the flesh, but the presence of Christ is really there in the elements. He believed in the real presence, though not, so, you know, not transubstantiation. Well, give him that much. Let him kind of set the boundaries of his own argument. But Zwingli believed that the bread represented the body of Jesus. And the cup represented the blood of Jesus. Now, which one of those two are we more like? I say we. I think most of us kind of have the same idea about those things. Which, which of those are we more like? In fact, Luther and Zwingli met to talk about that in Marburg. And uh, they had quite the discussion about it, quite the vigorous discussion. And then they left without agreeing on it. Which one are we more like? We're more like Zwingli, aren't we? Uh, we don't believe that the bread turns into the flesh or the cup turns into the blood. or We don't believe that you know, the, the, the body of Jesus is in, with, and under the, uh, the bread like, like Luther did. We believe that it's representative of the body. Have you ever heard anybody get up in the pulpit and they say, does everybody have the emblems? Now, I didn't know, I don't know if you, if you th knew it or thought about it. What a, what a significant theological statement you're making when you say that. Does, do we ha does everybody have the emblems? You see, we're saying that these elements are emblematic of the body and blood of Jesus, that they represent the body and blood of Jesus. Okay, anyway, don't want to go very much longer into that discussion, but that's just a, a, an, uh, an area of disagreement between Luther and Zwingli. But there's another difference between them, and that was the approach to using Scripture as a guide in the church. How do we go about using the Bible or using Scripture as a guide in the church, especially in our worship? And that brings us to what we want to talk a little bit more about tonight. They, they, as I said, they disagreed about this. Uh, Luther held to what's called the normative principle of worship. The normative principle is this. Whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship as long as it is agreeable to the peace and unity of the church. All right, so just, just read that again. I kind of want that, that to soak in a little bit. Whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship. And Luther held to this, to this approach. It's the, it doesn't say not to approach. Maybe you've had discussions with people and talked to them about this practice or that practice, and, and their response is, well, the Bible doesn't say not to. Well, that's, that's this approach. Whatever is not prohibited is, is allowed. And so, and so Luther kind of held on to some of the ceremonies and some of the elements found in the Roman Catholic Church. He, he retained those because they weren't specifically prohibited in Scripture. He found that they were helpful 
in some way. And so he was uh, in favor of maintaining those. Now, now Zwingli took another approach. It's called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle says this, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation like a painting or an icon or a statue or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. See the, see the difference between the two? Luther's view was you can do everything unless it's prohibited. And so you're at liberty to do whatever is not, unless the Bible says not to, you're, you're at liberty to, to practice that. Zwingli said, no, no, that, that's, that's not right. It's got to be found in Scripture, supported by Scripture. It's got to be, as he says here, prescribed in Holy Scripture. And so we want to talk about these two approaches, and really our interest is not so much in what Luther thought or Zwingli thought, but what the Scriptures have to say. This particular statement is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so uh, if you're interested, you can, you can see it there, chapter 20. Here's another quotation. This is from a book called Church History in Plain Language. Good place to start if you're interested in reading church history. It says, one important, in one important respect, Zwingli followed the Bible even more stringently than did Luther. The Wittenberger, that's Luther, would allow whatever the Bible did not prohibit. Zwingli rejected whatever the Bible did not prescribe. For this reason, the Reformation in Zurich, which is where Zwingli lived, tended to strip away more traditional symbols of the Roman church, candles, statues, music, pictures. Here's another quotation from a book called Theology of the Reformers. It says this, why, why was Zwingli so sternly opposed to images and other forms of ceremonial piety? Well, what can point to, uh, we can point to at least three reasons. First, the principle of scriptural authority relativized all extra-biblical practices. In other words, if you're practicing something that's not in the Bible, uh, scriptural authority would, would make it irrelevant or, or, or uh, uh, influence against that. This clearly expressed in the second of the ten conclusions of Byrne. There was a debate in Byrne, and these statements come out of that debate. The Church of Christ makes no laws or commandments apart from the Word of God, hence all human traditions are not binding upon us except so far as they are grounded upon or prescribed in the Word of God. In general, the Lutheran tradition has willingly retained in its worship those practices and customs not directly prohibited by Scripture. The Reformed tradition following Zwingli has tended to eliminate what is not expressly commanded in Scripture. That's, that's, now, I don't know if you're interested in all that or not. It's interesting to me to know that this discussion, this debate has been going on for a long time. It's the 16th century when this happened. And in the 16th century, you had people who were saying, no, we can only do what we find authority for in Scripture. That's the way we would say it. We can only do what is prescribed by Scripture. Now, this is the, if you can't find it in Scripture, you're not going to find it in the church approach. 
Now again, I don't know if you're interested in all that. That's really kind of a way to get into our discussion tonight. Our interest is really in what do the Scriptures say. And so can we, can we derive from the Scripture, draw out from the Scripture, how we ought to apply the Scripture to the work, the worship of the church today? Well, I want to make a case for you tonight. First, we'll start with this. The Scriptures are a complete guide in spiritual matters. Anything lacking from Scripture that we need to know, everything we need to know is found right here in the Word of God. The Scriptures provide a complete guide in spiritual matters. We'll start out in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, a passage that we've heard many times before. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If you back up a little bit, you'll find Paul encouraging Timothy to continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. From, from, a, from, the, from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ. And so let's just think about this passage for a minute. The Scriptures are inspired by God. They're, they're not just the products of men. It uh, didn't originate with, in the mind of human beings. They're written by men and address specific historical situations. But God is moving these men. He's working in them and with them and through them to write. They write what the Holy Spirit leads them to write. And so the Scripture is inspired by God. It's, it's breathed by God. Now, there are a few other passages that teach the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 3, for example, Paul says that by revelation was made known to me the mystery. And so God has revealed to Paul what Paul writes about. And in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says that it's not human wisdom that has produced what he writes, but it has been revealed to him by the Spirit. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but, those in, by the, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, so Paul says that it's the Spirit that's leading me to write what I write. Remember John, Jesus promised the, the apostles that the Spirit was going to come and guide them into all the truth. So the, the Scriptures are inspired by God. But 2 Timothy chapter 3 also tells us then that the Scriptures make us wise to salvation. And so abide in these things, the things that you've learned from childhood, the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. The Scriptures teach us all we need to know about how to be right with God. They supply the necessary doctrine, the necessary training in righteousness, the necessary reproof, the necessary correction. They will equip us then to every good work. They'll make us adequate to every good work. That word suggests capability. The Scriptures will make you capable of accomplishing every good work. Or uh, it will uh, enable us to meet all the demands since or because we're equipped for every good work. And so he makes us able, adequate, uh, having all the, everything we need to meet the demands because we will be equipped for every good work. 
And so, we don't need papal declarations. We don't need decisions of church councils that are not inspired. What we need is the inspired Word of God that's able to equip us to every good work. There are other passages that suggest that. I think about the the book of Jude. Look at the book of Jude and we'll look at uh, verse 3 where Jude says, While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And so the faith, that's the body of doctrine that should be believed and practiced. And so this body of doctrine has been once delivered. The word once suggests a finality and completeness. Once for all, what is done once doesn't need to be repeated. A parent may say to a child, those of you who are parents, have you ever said, I'm going to tell you this once? Maybe you've made that kind of statement. I'm going to tell you this once. I don't want to have to repeat it, you know. So that, that once has a note of finality to it. This, this is complete. This is all that needs to be said about it. I don't want to have to repeat myself. I'm going to tell you once. All right, the faith, the body of doctrine has been delivered to the same once. Once for all time. Same word is used in connection with the death of Christ in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 especially. We could begin way back up in verse 23. I don't have time to read all of that. But uh, verse 26 says, Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. The point is that Christ didn't have to suffer and sacrifice himself over and over and over again in the way they had to offer those animal sacrifices repeatedly over and over again. But now once at the consummation of the ages he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once. Once. Doesn't need to be repeated. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's final and it's complete. And so the faith, the body of doctrine to be believed and practiced, has been completely revealed to us in Scripture. Don't need to add to it. And so we've got everything, we've got everything we need right here. And so that's a good place to start. When we're trying to figure out now, now, now how are we going to approach taking the Scripture and, and using it to govern our worship and to govern how we organize ourselves, govern what we do as a church. How how are we going to decide that? Well, tell you what, we've got everything we need right here. We don't need papal declarations. We don't need decisions of church councils and all, all those kinds of things are not necessary to make us what God wants us to be in every way. It's the first point. The second point is this. The scriptures themselves teach us to remain within the doctrine and practices they establish. So the scriptures themselves say, don't get beyond the scriptures. Don't go beyond the scriptures. Let's look at that a little bit. We'll go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. See the principle laid down there, and then really it runs through out to the end of the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 says, you shall not add to the word which I'm, which I'm commanding you, nor, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Don't, don't add to it, or don't take away from it. We understand that principle. Here's the Scriptures. They contain everything we need to be right with God. We saw that in our first point. Now, now don't add to it or take away from it. And so the Scriptures themselves are saying, look, you just stay right within the Scripture. 
Don't go beyond the Scripture. Don't fall short of what Scripture teaches. Stay right there within the bounds of Scripture. Look at chapter 12 of Deuteronomy and verse 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. So what I command you, do what I command you. Don't add to it or take away from it. We understand. That's not a difficult principle to understand. Deuteronomy, or rather Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, or He will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Every word of God is tested. Don't add to His words. There's no reason to add to the words. They, they provide us with everything we need to know to be, to be uh, equipped to every good work. Adequately equipped to every good work. And then you might be running ahead of me a little bit, but maybe you thought about Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, I suppose John's focus is on that particular book, the book of Revelation. But we've already seen the principle applies to all Scripture that has been revealed by God. And so, because it applies to all Scripture, it applies to that book. All right? And so, uh, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And so it's just simply a restatement of the principle. We should understand the Scripture. We should seek to explain the Scripture, you know. As we teach each other, we come to an understanding and try to explain what it means. But do that with, and avoid adding practices or doctrines that are not supported by Scripture. Supported either by straightforward statement or by example or by implication. Here's another step in the in the process. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Deuteronomy 5, 31 through 33. But as for you, he's talking to Moses, but as for you, uh, stand here by me that I may speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I give them to possess. So you shall observe to do just as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you'll possess. Now, no, don't depart from it to the right or to the left. You just stay right within this word, and you don't digress this way or don't digress that way. It's interesting to me, you, we use those terms right and left to denote conservatism and liberalism. Now, now, you don't bind what God hasn't bound, but you don't lose what God hasn't loosed. You just stay right within the Word. And so the Scriptures themselves tell us to remain within the instruction of Scripture. Here's another passage that suggests that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uh, says to the Corinthians that he's writing this to them so that they might learn not to go beyond what is written. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Don't go beyond what's written. Now, in this section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, 
there are six Old Testament quotations. All right, so uh, uh, you know, uh, for four chapters, that's several Old Testament quotations. All of them have to do with not putting your trust in men, but putting your trust in God. He's addressing the problem in Corinth of thinking too highly of human wisdom. You think too highly of human wisdom. And I want to tell you, don't put your trust in men. Put your trust in God. And we learn that from the Old Testament, Paul is saying. Quote several scriptures to that effect. Now, I want you not to go beyond what's written. I want you to learn from the scripture. I want you to stay within the limits of scripture. The scriptures tell us to trust in God. And so trust in God and not man. Don't, don't go beyond what's written. The judgments of men, the wisdom of men is unreliable. It's not man's thoughts that ought to guide us. It's what God has written. Notice that what is written is authoritative. Now, that's important. What is written is authoritative. When Jesus faces temptation from the devil, how does he respond? It is written. It's important that we abide within what is what is written. When you go and make a deal with a car dealer, Cherry's a much better negotiator than I am. I think I've told you that before. And the car dealer make a promise, and Cherry will say, I want that in writing. You know? Now, it's a little hyperbolic, but uh, you get the idea. I want it in writing. Well, why would you want it in writing? Because when you put it in writing, he's making a commitment to it. And uh, he has to stand behind it. It's been established. It's been confirmed. This is in writing. This is in writing. It's established. It's confirmed. God's committed Himself to these things. And so we want to stay within what is written and not depend on the judgments of men or the opinions of men. Those are unreliable. But what God has written is authoritative and, and reliable. In 2 John and verse 9, there we're told to remain within the doctrine of Christ. Whoever goes onward and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ or the doctrine of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so, again, you stay within the limits of the doctrine of Christ. Now, there's a particular false doctrine that John is dealing with there in, in 1 John. Some were saying that Christ has not come in the flesh. But the principle would apply to all doctrinal issues, wouldn't it? And so you remain in the doctrine of Christ, what Christ has taught you and what His appointed representatives have taught in the name of Christ. And don't depart from it to the right or to the left. And so the Scriptures themselves say, you, you remain in Scripture. Don't depart to the right or to the left. Don't go beyond what's written. And so, and so there's that <laughs> principle in the, in the process as well. And then there are some examples that reinforce these principles. Let's look at a few of those. Leviticus chapter 10. The sons of Aaron are meant to serve as priests on behalf of the people. We see that back in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1. Part of their responsibilities involved burning incense on the altar of incense every morning and every evening. We see that in Exodus 30, verses 7 through 10. The incense was made with certain ingredients. There, there's a certain recipe for the inf incense that God wanted burned on, on the altar. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 through 38. 
They, they were not to make that, that recipe for themselves and use it in their homes. This was special and set aside for God's purposes and so forth. Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, we read about the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and it says that they took their respective fire pans, after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They offered strange... Now, it doesn't, it doesn't specify or describe further or define further what strange fire is, but they did what the Lord had not commanded them to do. And so we would say they, they went beyond the Lord's command. They, they departed from the Lord's command either to the right or to the left. They, they didn't do what the Lord commanded. The Lord commanded do this, and so that's what He expected them to do. And when they digressed from that, well, then they were held accountable and were executed. Don't we learn from that that we should remain within the doctrines and practices authorized by Scripture? And, and so this is the way God intends for us to do. Okay, we'll, ju- we'll do it that way. This is what Scripture establishes. This is what we find in written, in written Scripture. That's, that's sort of redundant in a written Scripture. Scripture is what's written. <laughs> Well, we find it in Scripture, so, that, so that's what we're going to do. Can't find it in Scripture? Okay, we're not going to do that. Well, here's another illustration of the same principle. We're going to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 13, but we'll kind of lead ourselves up to that point. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God with the mercy seat, very special article in the life of Israel, very, very special thing in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And remember, that, that was to be placed in that most holy place in the tabernacle. You have the tabernacle, then you have the, sort of the outer area, the holy place, and then inside the veil, there's the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember, the high priest could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for sin. And so this is a very special object in the life of Israel. That's where atonement for sin was made. It's sort of the throne of God. Remember the cherubim are on the mercy seat, on on the Ark of the Covenant, and several passages speak of God being enthroned above the cherubim. And so it's almost like the throne of God. And don't have an image of God in there, anything like that, of course. But here you you have the Ark and the mercy seat. And it's where God met man. That's where God met man. No one was to touch it. No one was even to look at it. And let's find that in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 20. And so, like I said a moment ago, and the, the high priest would go in there once a year. It would be, the room would be full of smoke from incense that's been burning and probably shield him to some degree uh, from the presence of the, the Ark of the Covenant. But anyway, no one was to look at it. No one was to touch it under the penalty of death. Well, how did they move it around? Remember, the tabernacle kind of went around as they were wandering in the wilderness. They'd move it around from place to place. So how how did they move this? Well, it was constructed with some rings on it. And so long poles were put through those rings, and the priest would carry it then, put one of the pole. Each priest would put a pole on his shoulder. They would carry it that way from, from place to place. We read about that, Exodus 25, verses 10 through 16. Now, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, David wants to move the Ark of the Covenant. It's been in the 
house, had been at the house of a man named Abinadab for, for quite a while. And so David wants to bring it from his house into Jerusalem. And so what, what do you think they do? Well, David makes a new cart, an ox cart. And he's going to put the Ark of the Covenant on the ox cart and then bring it into Jerusalem. And so 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 2, David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, if it's from the Lord your God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And so they construct this ark. Verse 7, they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Now Uzzah was the son of the priest. He was the son of Abinadab. And so they're driving the cart. And verse 9 tells us, When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned with, against Uzzah, so he had struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before the Lord. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So David didn't respond to this very well himself. And, and, and so they put the ark on a new cart, and they're transporting it in that way. The oxen stumble, come across a rough spot in the road, I suppose. And, and, and it appears for a moment the ark of God might fall onto the ground, and at least it becomes unsteady. And Uzzah, no doubt it's just a reflex, puts his hand out there to, to stop it. You're not supposed to touch the ark. <laughs> if you do, you're going to die. That, that was the rule. That's the law. And as a matter of fact, God took his life right there and then. Well, later, another attempt is made. They, they kind of put this off for a while, but in, in a little while, an, another attempt is made. So go over to chapter 15 and look at verse 11. David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest, for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You're the heads of the fathers of the households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, uh, God of Israel, to the place that I prepared for it. Let's try this again. I want to bring up the ark of God to the place that I prepared for here in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says next. Because you didn't carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, and we did not seek Him according to the ordinance. In other words, God told us what He wanted us to do. He told us how He wanted us to transport the ark, and we didn't do it that way, and so we've incurred the wrath of God. Well, that's simply a, an illustration, an example that supports what we've been saying. God will tell us what He wants us to do. And, and we need to remain within those dictates not depart from them to the right or to the left. Now let's look at a good positive illustration of this. In Exodus chapter 25, Moses is given the direction to build the tabernacle and all the articles that go along with it. He says in verse 9, According to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. I'm, I'm going to show you exactly how I want it done, and that's how I expect you to do it. And so there's a lot of detail about the tabernacle and the articles that go along with it. And then we come to Exodus chapter 40, 
We find that Moses has done this, and verse 16 says, Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. And then verse 19, he spread the tent over the tabernacle, just as the Lord had commanded him. And then verse 21, he did this just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, he lighted the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And verse 27, he burnt fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then verse 29, he set the altar burnt offering before the doorway of the tabernacle, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then verse 32, when they entered the tent of meeting, when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. <laughs> and verse 33, he erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court that Moses had finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses did just like the Lord told him. We see it again. Moses did just what the Lord told him. We see it again. Moses did just what the Lord... And what's the result of that? Well, Moses wasn't struck dead, was he? In fact, the glory of God fills the temple. That's a positive example. When you do just as the Lord instructs you to do, without deviating from it, without falling short, without going beyond, when you do just what the Lord... Well, God is pleased. Well, in conclusion, we'll just make four observations. Observation number one. It's the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach Him in worship. But that's God's prerogative. God decides how sinners should worship Him. Okay? I don't get to make that decision. Well, that seems good to me. God, God decides. Observation number two. Introducing unscriptural practices, practices not based on Scripture, undermine scripturally ordained worship. In other words, when we begin to insert our own actions in, in worship and we, 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 you know, we begin to do this, well, eventually that takes precedence over what the Lord has instructed to do. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? Through your tradition, you nullify the Word of God. The traditions that they developed became more important to them than the Word of God itself. That's, that's human nature. Observation number three. When we add what is not scriptural, we call into question God's wisdom. And so God, it's, you know, what you've authorized is good, but really not as good as what I think. So we kind of call into question God's wisdom. And then fourthly, as we've seen, Scripture forbids worship practices not established by God. And so if it's not established by God, doesn't, it's not founded on the Word, well then we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing it. And so, we're only going to do, we, we've kind of made that commitment, we're going to do what we find prescribed in Scripture, without departing to the left or to the right, without going beyond or falling short. Now, we don't practice that because that was Zwingli's idea and we thought he's a pretty bright person. That's not why we do it, because we see this is a sound biblical approach. <laughs> this is an approach that has the authority and support of Scripture itself. So, okay. Time's out. Appreciate everybody's, pre uh, not only presence, but attention today, patience today. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you've revealed to us your will. Father, we wouldn't know how to go or how to proceed to please you without your revealed will. It's not in man that walks to direct his steps. We need your direction. We need your guidance. And we're thankful that you've given us that guidance in your word. Help us, Father, help us to study it, to study it diligently, to see what you would have us to do. Help us, Father, to follow those instructions, to follow those directions without deviating from them, without adding to them or taking away from them, without falling short of them or going beyond them. Help us, Father, to look to your Scripture as our guide in spiritual matters. We're confident, God, that you've given us the ability to find your will. You've made it evident to us. And so, Father, we ask for your guidance. We ask for your help. We ask for wisdom that we can see what you would have us to do. And with your help, we can see it, we can find it, we can do it, and we're confident we can please you. We're thankful that you've made that available to us. And so, Father, we pray that we will embark each one of us on a diligent study of your word so that we might do the things that are pleasing to you. We're thankful for the gift of your Son. We're thankful that he came into this world, that he atoned for our sin on the cross. We pray, Father, that our sins will be washed away by his blood and that we will walk with him each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.